You're listening to the Advancing Your Photography podcast. I'm your host, Mark Silver. I connect you with remarkable photographers who've mastered their craft, sharing their insight and skills so you can put them right to use. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. If you don't know who I am, I'm Mark Silver. I am a published photographer. I've written four books on photography. And I live in Carmel, California, really close to where Ansel Adams, Edward Weston, and many other fantastic photographers lived and still live. That's my intro. Now, I want to introduce you. Dan, if you don't already know him, is a documentary photographer. He spent 25 years as a full-time photographer, but he's currently a creative evangelist for Blurb. He loves to strip away unnecessary complexities. Guess what? There are no necessary complexities. They're all unnecessary. From photography. (laughs) And he urges people to make books. And if you haven't already seen his film, The Advantages of Using a Single Lens, watch it after we're done, and we'll give you the link at the end. We don't want you watching it right now. And Dan, welcome back to AYP. Always awesome to have you here. Yeah, we made it through, almost made it through another week. It has been one of the busy, busiest weeks I've had in a long time. Um, actually, the last, since quarantine started, my work life has become, is literally the busiest um, stretch I've ever had in 11 years at Blur, which is completely surprising to me. I thought there would be a multi-week period of like complete nothingness in terms of coming from work, but it was the polar opposite. It's been far more complex and far busier than, than I've ever had in my entire time there, which is actually really good. I like to be constructively busy. I don't like to be busy for busy sake. Yeah. I do love to be, and I constantly have millions of projects going on, personal, collaborative, and then also with Blur. So I'm super busy. That's awesome. Yeah. Me, me too. Yeah. And I agree with you. You know, it's like right now is a good time to get all into all your projects because the world is taking a break. We don't have to. Yeah, the hard the thing I get asked all the time about project ideas and there someone wrote in, someone named HC, which when I see I I think of Henri Cartier-Bresson, but I yeah. know it's not Henri Cartier-Bresson because I think he's been dead for a long time. We, we would have to But he's got He's got like six questions in a row, which I think are all good and they're interesting and I want to address those at some point. But there's always questions about projects and like finding projects that you have some connection to. This is not a brag. This is just a statement that I've never had a project problem coming up with story ideas because I've been a reader my whole life. I read as much as I can possibly read. And I, I think it's almost impossible to read the volume that I read and the range of what I read and not be able to just be like thunderstruck with project idea after project idea. So what I do is I keep a list on my iPad. The iPad Pro is the only piece of Apple equipment, even though I've broken like many of these things and they, some of them just die when they get within radius of my body. But I really like it because it has a pen and I can just quickly jot down story notes and ideas. But I typically have three or four project ideas going all the time. Quarantine has changed a couple of those. My project in California, I obviously can't get to. My project in New Mexico, I can't get to. And so what I've done is gone back, started a new project from a body of work I did in 2012, and it's primarily a, a written piece. There, There is a photographic element, but it's writing because I have access to being able to, I can write 24 hours a day here, so I might as well be constructive. 
I'm also trying to bone up on my, my Spanish skills, my drawing skills, my cycling skills, and my stationary bike. You know, I'm just trying to, my, my goal is to come out of the pandemic more helpful than I was before I went in. So maybe I have an idea that helps you, or Mark and I together have an idea that helps people, or whatever it is. You're just trying to come out. I don't want to be idle during this time. I think that there's this is an opportunity in some weird way, and we have to take advantage. So Totally agree. We're going to talk about this Albania thing, right? And I yeah. think the Albanian, the Albania thing is interesting for a variety of reasons. Excuse um, me. By the way, Dan, as yeah. soon as you want me to bring up uh, your images on the screen, I got them ready to go. So just just let me know, and I'll I'll pull them over for you. Okay, um, you can do it really at, at any time. I mean, I think okay. um, I've got a magazine here from the project that I was going to just sort of ten, you know kind of show people, however best I could through the, through the monitor. But yeah, so I, I've got the uh, first image of the boys in the water. That shot towards the end of my end of my trip in Albania. Um, but let me go back to the beginning here. So sure. You don't have to travel to do good projects. And I don't travel, for the last 10 years at Blurb, I've spent a huge portion of my life on the road for Blurb. That is not vacation travel. That is as far from vacation travel as you can get. Blurb travel is intense. I'm typically doing at least one event a day. I go from city to city to city. It's not a productive way to make photographs, right? The only time I could use that to my advantage is if I went to someplace like Australia that was so far away. I would incorporate vacation time into the back end of my blurb trip, and then I would try to get out and do my own projects. And I did. The last project in Australia was called Meat and Candy, and it was a long trip through Western Australia, which is one of my favorite all-time places. But most of the time, I'm, I'm saddled with the blurb stuff. So I have a friend named Elena Dorfman who's of Albanian descent, and, Alba and Elena's been going in and out of Albania since the country opened after being isolated for 40 years, 28 years under Russian rule, 12 under Chinese. And I didn't know a whole lot about Albania. I knew where it was. I knew sort of a, a sort of a veiled history of what had happened there, but not a whole lot. And out, and she, Elena, had been going in and out, in and out, and has family there, and is very familiar, very versed with the country. And she decided to teach a workshop. So I got a degree in photojournalism. I did ninety two, and I took my first workshop in ninety seven in Santa Fe with a guy named Chris Rainier, who's a geographic photographer. And the only reason I took the workshop was Kodak called me and said, you could take it for free. So I did. And it really blew my mind because, you know, at the time I thought, oh, I have a degree in photography. I've already been working for five years as a photographer, but like I had a lot to learn still. And so Chris was really helpful. And then the following year, I took a workshop with Rob Kendrick and that completely blew my mind. And Rob and I are still friends today. And he's one of the smartest people I've ever met in photography. So when Elena said, hey, I'm teaching a workshop, I was like, hey, I want to take the workshop. So I went to Albania to take Elena's workshop. And but before I went, there were three there's three basic things I want to talk about. The first is number one, importantly. So I had not thought about camera equipment at all. I decided to go to Albania and to take the workshop. And the first thing I had to do was to research. I had to go to the computer and I had to go to the library and I had to start researching Albania, what it is, where it is, what's the history, what are the details. It wasn't like I wrote a book about the history of Albania, but I needed to understand where I was going, right? right. So I, I understood that I, like, uh, Albania had been in this 40-year period of isolation, but they were coming out. And when people, and they've been coming out for you know a decade, and it's almost a decade. And so when countries go through these transitions, they, they flip oftentimes overnight. 
not just the population, but the government, the leaders, the healthcare, the transportation systems, and then all the surrounding countries are involved as well. And so what I realized was the best way to represent that to me was through a series of double exposures, which you know in some way could represent the old and the new in one static photograph. So that research was number one. Number two was realizing that I was gonna do double exposures. And the only way to do that for me really was the, the digital camera was the best way for me to do that. And so the first point was doing the research and then realizing I wanted to do double exposures. The second point was realizing that I wanted to build a magazine in real time as I went through the country, because I knew with the workshop that we would have time set aside for looking at each other's work, for editing, sequencing, and getting the opinion of the workshop instructor. You know, Elena is a fine art photographer. She's a very different photographer than me. And so to get, and she's a very high level photographer. So to get her opinion on what I was doing was invaluable to me. So every day I sat with her and we looked at the software and we dragged and dropped my spreads and we talked about pictures and editing and sequencing. And so every day at the end of the day, I was compiling this magazine. And the only way to do that was with digital. So once I had made that decision, I never thought about my equipment again, ever. I didn't have to. And so the magazine, for those of you, and Mark, I think you've got a, a few pictures of this. Yeah, but let me bring up, I'm going to bring you up. So go ahead and show that from your and I think it's always better to show the actual thing. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so it's called um, it's called declassified, declassified power, and it's um, it basically this is not a story or history of Albania by any stretch. What this is basically is a portfolio that I made during the trip that is the the beginnings of what could become a project at some point. And you'll notice there's there's lots of lots of copy. The copy is very, very important. Yeah. And that was the third part of the story was that <clears throat> the written part would be as important as the photographs. So that meant that I needed to talk to people, that I needed to sort of pseudo interview people, that I needed to record overheard conversations, that I needed to record things so that I could have copy to accompany the photographs. Because the copy, every 10 pages, there's a full page of copy. That's critical because you can't necessarily get that content from the images and especially in a two-week time frame now my plan was to go back in may of this year we were scheduled to um elena was doing the workshop again and this year i was invited to co-teach and i was going to be teaching the magazine portion of this trip subsequently what happened is that my wife decided to go as well and this is what put the final decision in the the equipment list is is my wife was packing up for the trip and i was packing up and i try to take as little as humanly possible both my clothing and my supplies and my cameras and all that i just don't want to carry anything and you, and you're 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 moving all day long every day you're constantly in transit you don't want a lot of stuff with you and so and you don't need to you can always you can always do laundry you can always buy a t-shirt if you need a t-shirt whatever so my wife's packing up and i'm looking at her equipment that she's taking and i'm looking at these slrs and these lenses and i'm like i wouldn't want to carry that like why are you taking all that stuff and she's like oh i got to do this i got to do that i said i go no this is what we're going to do i have two bodies two digital bodies and i'm going to give you one lens and i'm taking one lens and then i'm throwing in a third lens in case there's a catastrophic failure with one of the two lenses that we have this was this would not have been ideal because the third lens that i put in was an 85 a fast 85 and that's not a lens that i would want to shoot all day every day so i had a 50 and she had a 35 and that's and it what, were the, we just what had, were the cameras just out of curiosity what were the bodies xt2 fuji's they're the only okay. digital cameras i owned 
And, you know, I've had them for a long time. They're simple. They're pretty reliable. They're basic and small and light. And again, you're packing and unpacking your stuff all day, every day, all night, right. every night, packing, unpacking. So the, to put my camera gear away took me 10 seconds. And it was just simple and everything fit in two little bags and we're constantly, you know, you're on the move. And so she took the 35, I took the 50. So I didn't have a choice in the matter in terms of what the gear was. But again, once I made the decision to do doubles and to really focus on copy as well as photographs, and I'm not a heavy shooter to begin with, when I'm doing images like this in the field, when I'm doing projects, you know, I might shoot 50 total pictures in, in, in a day. I might shoot 100 pictures in a day, but I'm not one of these people who's out like just hammering every single thing because yeah. I know what I'm after. I've done this a long time. I've sort of figured out the pictures that make me happy and I know how to get them. And the ingredients are not always there, but I'm waiting and I'm watching and I'm waiting and I'm watching. I'm not wasting time shooting stuff. And that comes from growing up with film. You know, with film, you, if I went on a trip like this with a film camera back in the day, I probably would have had 40 rolls of 35 at the most, maybe 30 rolls of film. And, you know, you had to, the limitations were awesome. You know, that's what, that's what made you think at a very different level when you only have X amount of material to work with. And, uh, this is how we learn, Dan. I mean, look, we, this is my Leica M2. You know, you had however many rolls of film and that was it. And every time you press the shutter, you knew you were, you were going to go into the darkroom and have to do the work. So you're not... Oh, you're, the darkroom made it exponentially worse because you realized, you know, again, you're like, holy cow, this is a half day or a day of my yeah. life just to make a single print. So. Luckily, I mean, we don't have to necessarily do that anymore unless we want to. But the other part of the writing thing. So this has been my journal for the last since November. This was my journal. Let's and see. I, it. Just I love that. Come on. Show I just filled. I just filled it up. And show so me now, some of that. show me that. Show me that journal. I'm... I just started this one. This is my new one, which is fatter and okay. smaller. It's a six by nine. And um, Let, let's see raven, some of those pages. Way. I no. want to savor this for a second. Because dead raven. this is a good like one. I just did this one this morning. I just did that's this this morning. Multimedia, Dan. That's amazing. So that's an old, this is an old inkjet print that was 17 by 22. This is a kid in, I think this kid is in his 20s now. I photographed him when he was, uh, he's probably in middle school. I used to do a lot of portraits. Amazing kid to photograph. But I had all these giant prints I didn't really need anymore. And they're inkjet, so it's not like they're darkroom prints. Yeah. So I tore it in half, glued it in, and then I wrote this thing about the, the pandemic. This is the first journal that I started during the pandemic. And so this was made, the journal was made, and my point with this is not only that I filled up my journal since November and I started a new one, but in Albania, this was a huge part of my day. I took time, I, I get up really early, I took time every morning and every afternoon, every moment that I was stationary, I was writing. Because when, you when it comes to doing a documentary project, the, the photographs are obviously important, but sometimes the copy is as important and it's very strategic because copy attracts a very different kind of viewer. You know, I'm not interested in what other photographers think of my photographs. Now, during the workshop, getting Elena's opinion, yeah, that's important and fun and different because she looks at it from such a different filter than I do. But once I'm back and I have the magazine, I don't care what other photographers think. Yeah. Because they're going to look at it through all kinds of weird, you know, photo filters. What I'm interested in is the people who go, oh, I'll tell you exactly who I'm interested in. The people when I said, I'm going to Albania, the people who said, you're going to die 100% sure. They were just, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. I want them to see this and understand it. And also the people that go, why do you want to go to Russia? 
because they don't know where Albania is. They don't know anything about it. They confuse it with, you know, every other they can. They don't know it's where it's located. Yeah. They don't know the neighboring countries. They don't know the region. They assume I had people ask me where in South America Albania. Were. <laughs> so, you know, Americans oftentimes have problems finding the U.S. on a map. And many people here don't have passports and they're not super knowledgeable about other parts of the world. I'm far more interested in dangling this this little body of work in front of them because it it just piques their attention for a minute and they go oh i thought albania was in russia or um what are you talking about italians taking a ferry to albania every day and i'm like yeah it's right across the sea from italy oh i had no idea those are the people i'm interested in photographers you know it's that's not a community that um and it, all my friends are photographers it's not like i don't like photographers but in terms of looking at the validity of the work it's not that interesting to me to say to other or for example putting it online and trying to get feedback online of people saying oh that's i'm thumbs up or i don't like it doesn't matter yeah yeah well listen going to our topic here so shooting stories not cameras so you've already told us about the the fact that you had one body and one lens so we're not obsessing over equipment and messing around with it in the in the video you you said there were three basic points three reasons why you ought to shoot with a single lens just to underscore that could you kind of roll through those again? You think I can remember those reasons? I, I'll prompt you. <laughs> so look, I mean, here's the thing. I used to teach photo workshops. I taught photo workshops for years. I still get asked to do it. I got asked to do it last week. And I said, look, I just don't have time to do it well. So I'm not really going to do that anymore. And one of the things that I noticed when digital arrived was that I, let's say I would teach in Peru, right? I would go to Peru once a year with a guy named Adam Weintraub who runs photo experience workshops in Colombia, Peru. He's amazing. And if you can take a workshop with Adam, I would highly recommend it. And I would, I noticed that people would I would watch them the first couple of days of the workshop. And oftentimes people had two camera bodies, two lenses or three lenses or fanny packs or backpacks filled with gear and strobes and off camera cords (laughs) and all this stuff. And they were so, they would spend all their time looking at their equipment. And they were, the first three or four days of the workshop, they were trying to get beyond the fact that they had this complicated mess in their hands. And I'm like, yeah. If you're standing in the street and you're staring at the back of your camera, you're not staring at what you should be staring at. It's very basic. So I'm like, man, you should just leave all that stuff at the at the hacienda and just go out with something limited because a limit is not a bad thing. Having 36 exposures of film on a single roll, that's not a limitation. That's a great thing because you better ration it. It's like a sniper that has 12 rounds and he's out on an assignment somewhere. And you're like, okay, I got 12 rounds. I might not want to waste these things. I'm reading a book about World War One right now in the uh, Arabian campaign where T.E. Lawrence was, uh, you know, trying oh, yeah. to help the Brits work with the Bedouins to beat the Turks. And it's fascinating. You know, these guys were out hundreds and hundreds of miles on camels with very limited supplies. And it's like photography is kind of the same thing where you you don't necessarily want to waste what you have. So first of all, you're, you're not staring at your equipment. It's not complicated. You're carrying a lot less. Two, you're not a- attracting as much attention when you're walking around. Right. If you walk around with like giant cameras and lenses and stuff, everyone's like, oh boy. And plus you can be, depending on where you're working, it's kind of a target of people saying, look, I'm gonna take a chance and maybe you know see if I can get away with something here. Um, and it's you know small and light. And again, it's like, it just, it hones you to look at what's essential, which is light, timing, and composition. That's it. 
There's nothing else that matters. It doesn't matter what you, a guy wrote me an email this morning and we were exchanging emails about WG Smith and Smith had a five cameras stolen out of his car and ended up going and doing his work in Minamata with a with an old Minolta and a Nikon or something. He just took whatever he could find and he did this body of work that's one of the singular most important bodies of work ever made by a documentary photographer. The only people who really converse about this are amateurs Yeah, because Here's the truth. It's a lot easier to sit online and talk about gear than it is to go make pictures. It's so a lot true. easier. It's endless. You can sit here all day long and have little arguments online about this or that. And the reason people do Amen, it- Amen, brother. You know, this is our whole point on AYP is like, look, a camera is a tool. There's a lot of tools you can use. I mean, pick any one. And- It's just, it's easy. It's, it's which one you want to use, but that's not the point. It is about getting the story Use the tool to get the story. Great. But what's the important thing is the story, right? So- I'll have, I'll have, a, I have another example. It just dawned on me. So there's a little zippered slip case. And inside is this zine, collaborative zine project that I've been working on, which nice. is QR'd and all these amazing stories in here. Great design. So there's nine contributors in that zine, right? And when we came up with the idea of doing the zine, I didn't, neither the, my, myself or my other senior co-editor, Rick, we, we didn't have any idea who was going to be in it. We just said, look, this is something we feel passionate about. We should try to do this zine. We're going to promote understanding through dialogue and art, and we're just going to print good stories. It doesn't matter who made them, pro, amateur, prosumer, whatever, writer, artist, illustrator, photographer, it doesn't matter who is doing the story, as long as it's a good story that may pique someone's interest. There was not, it took over a year to get this done, the first issue. There was not a single conversation There was not even a single sentence in that entire year of work of putting this together where anyone mentioned how anyone in here actually made the work, right? The the designer, I didn't ask the designer, did you use InDesign or did you use, you know, uh, Quark or did you, you know, how did you do this? I just looked at her work and said, that's really good work. That's a really interesting story. You know, Megan Wong and Sydney did this story called Afterlife of Plastic photographs in a studio of plastic, basically in essence saying that it never goes away. Once we have plastic into the world, it hard, you know, it doesn't decompose for, you know, thousands of years. Yeah. Charlene, Winf- Charlene Winfred, who's a photographer in Kurdistan. I didn't think to myself, gee, I wonder how Charlene or camera Charlene used to do these pictures. I just read her copy and I saw the work and said, this is a profoundly good story. Right. It doesn't matter how she made this. Right. It's about what that story means to the people who are going to read it. Yeah. Andrew Kaufman in Florida did uh, his 10 year study of the Panama Canal expansion. He probably, I'm guessing, used half a dozen different formats and journals and lots of writing and audio recordings, whatever. I, I just don't care. What I care about is when you see that body of work and you realize he's the only person who has it in the entire world. He's the only person that has that specific body of work. So that's the stuff that that excites me and interests me. And again, I'm so busy, I don't really have time for that equipment conversation. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and I think I mentioned this before, but once a year, I'm able to, um, I, I'm, I'm super fortunate. I get invited to this very private event. That's a, it's a gathering of photographers, incredibly high level. It's the single highest level group of people I've ever been around in my life in terms of photography. And we get to just have a morning where we talk. And I've never had an equipment conversation. I've been doing this for over a decade. I've never had an equipment conversation with any of these folks. It's always about books. It's about gallery shows, museum shows, influence, process, um, what worked, what didn't, how families are doing, 
you know, what do you want to work on next? What, what have you seen that's influential? That kind of stuff. That's the juice of photography to me is there's two, two juices in photography. The first juice is the adventure of being in the field. And the second juice is printing what I'm doing. I love it. I get, I get no thrill putting work online at all. I, I put it you. on. I, I, I've had a website, a blog for 20 years. I love blogging. I could care less how many people read it or how many people follow it. I just don't have any emotional attachment to it other than I'm compulsive about it. I love to write and put stuff online. And when there is a conversation that develops, I love engaging with it because it's always really fun. And a blog is more of a conversation as opposed to social, which is like a little soundbite. Yeah. I like I like conversation. And so the pr printing to me is the juice of because printing exposes my weaknesses, right? It exposes my editing weakness, my sequencing weakness and my definite page layout weakness. You know, I'm not a designer. I'm struggling every day to learn better design typography ideas and things like that. And so I love the challenge. The rest of it is noise to me that I'm not concerned about. Well, this is a common, you know, point. We've, we've talked about this. The end product, I find, I agree with you, I, the satisfaction of having your work in print and seeing it laid out properly, seeing, you know, working with a designer is obviously a really great thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm not a, like you. I'm not a designer. I don't know about topography. I, I need help. Right. I would have That's... never done this. I would have never even tried this if Rick from beyond had not ponied up to pay for a designer. And I told him when he when he pitched the idea of doing the zine, I said, we, you're not designing it. I can't do it. Like, we have to get a really good designer. And yeah. I said, it's going to cost you some serious money. And he said, do it. And so I reached out to Zoe Sadakirsky in Sydney, never imagining that she would do it herself. She teaches at UTS, which is the design school in Sydney. And I thought, oh, she'll have probably a grad student or somebody that we can work with. And we told her what the concept was. And she said, I want it. That's me. I'm, des I'm designing it. And so this was way beyond anything that I would have been able to do on my own. I wouldn't have even been able to design the cover. I mean, she the cover image and the concept behind it ties to the theme of the first issue. That came from Zoe. That didn't come from me. It didn't come from Rick. So it's a collective community of people that are high level. Yeah. And printing, printing separates, to me, the posers from the real pros. It's not to say that you have to print every single thing that you do, but the ability to encapsulate an idea concisely. You know, there is no fat in a good edit. There is no fat yeah. because the fat will kill the story immediately. And a lot of times younger photographers or online photographers, oftentimes, in the, and I totally understand this, they don't understand that, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, photo editors were a whole separate category of industry professionals. And there's still there's still photo editors out there. Yeah. But there were a lot more. And, you know, we would do projects. And the first thing you did was hire an editor. And they would come in and do things with your work that would simply blow your mind. They were so much better at editing your work than you were. And, you know, I've got examples one after the other of we of hiring design, uh, not designers, but hiring editors who were just they left me with my mouth on the floor. Like I literally could not see what they had seen. And that's where a good editor comes in. So yeah. printing is everything I do ends up in everything of substance and ends up in print. And oh, by the way, I'm not talking about necessarily making a book every time or a giant print for the wall. This to me, this little journal page I did this morning, to me, that's just as relevant as, you know, and it's a cheap printer. You know, it's a fountain, cheap fountain pen that I got for, I got five pens for like whatever, 14 bucks and they're, they're, you know, nothing fancy. 
It's a it's an inexpensive journal that I printed through Blurb. That to me is on equal par with with the Albania thing. Or it it all isn't. It's all the same. It's just spending critical totally. thought thinking about your work. It's getting your work out. Get it off the computer. Get it out on on the wall. Get it in a book. Put it somewhere. It that's the satisfaction and that's the root to photography. What do we do? We went to the dark room. We printed stuff. When you printed it, then you put it somewhere else. You either showed it to somebody, or like Dan, you made a book out of it, or you put it the on dark the dark room. Luckily, when I came up, I didn't have any other choice, right? You, at the time, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, you could have gone to Kinko's, you know, and scanned a, a slide and you could have made like lo-fi pubs, which I did from time to time. But really, when it came to making a print, it was the dark room. And yeah. the, dark, the dark room, it, it's hard to emphasize enough the complexity of the dark room. It is an art form in itself. <laughs> just mixing chemistry alone, just the mixing of just- the chemistry mixing chemicals the right temperature your agitating yes. film or stand agitation um, temperature time agitation de- dilution rates all these things it was literally a phd in itself and i did it for however long you did it for however long i yeah. would never consider myself a good darkroom printer i have friends who are who are literally expert darkroom printers and it's like me talking to fleming in denmark and he's speaking in danish and I'm like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, I know that it's a language, but I don't know anything about it. I, I can't understand a single word. And a really good master darkroom printer is the same. They converse at a level about it that's so far beyond anything I ever attained. Now, to my, to my, in my defense, when I was in the darkroom, I was working in journalism, and journalism speed trumped quality when it came to yeah. a darkroom print. You know, we had liquid bleach with paintbrushes. And we would paint bleach onto a print to, to bring out the shadows. Like we were that pressed for time. Amazing. And whites, the whites of eyes, you would take a bleach, a paintbrush, and you would bleach out the eyes of the people in the thing because you didn't have time to go in and do a you know double exposure print and zone yeah. five and zone zero and bring it up in chemistry. You had some editor screaming at you on the other side of the darkroom door like you're going to get fired if you don't have a print out here in the next two minutes. No kind pressure. down on they kind of cut down on your quality, you know? Yeah. <laughs> journalism, journalism at the time, and I'm sure it's worse now, it was about pressure. Yeah. It was every single, I mean, there were many, many nights that I woke up in the middle of the night worried about what assignments were in my basket the next day. I couldn't sleep. I didn't know what they were. It could have been anything. And I was just nervous because I knew what pressure cooker I was about to go under. And I did that for, I guess, about two and a half years every day, just being shredded by, you know, getting, that's how I really learned to be a photographer. It was, you know, I'd already had a degree, but I didn't know what I was doing at all. And it wasn't until the newspaper world. And I got lucky. I got good, good newspaper, good editor, encouraging photographers, but man, they threw you to the wolves fast. Well, I'm glad you survived. And hey, listen, I know we've got a limited amount of time with you today. So, so I want to start at the top with these. Yeah, let's pick up some of these questions. I'm going to read off the first three or four because they're they're fantastic. What was the biggest limiting factor in your life which prevented you from becoming a more iconic photographer? No offense. Your work overall is solid, especially when sequenced, but there aren't standout iconic pieces that other photographers with careers spanning similar amounts of time have managed to produce. Okay, so there's multiple questions in there. We'll start with yeah. this. 
That is a, a totally valid question. There's several answers. Number one, I never considered myself an iconic photographer. Everything I've ever done has been derivative. If you want iconic in documentary, you look for Gene Smith, Salgado kind of people. And I knew that I was never going to get anywhere near their level for a variety of reasons, not just because my talent level was below theirs, but also their networks they had in place. Um, you know, Salgado's wife, Layla, is a powerhouse and she's a huge part of who Sebastian Salgado is on the business side. She doesn't make pictures in the field for him, but business-wise, she is a critical part of who he is. But I think more than anything is what I just mentioned a minute ago. The two areas of juice for me as a photographer are the experience of being in the field and printing it on my own. I never cared about being published and I never cared about being known. And I'll give you a little example of this. So I did a body of work once that took about four years. I think it's one of the best bodies of work I've ever done. And I loved making it because it put me in an environment that was very unlike my own. It was an environment that I never wanted to be a part of. I just wanted to understand it. And there was another photographer there who was also there making pictures. And they had been working on this, a similar story for several years. And when I got done with that project and it had been run in three or four different magazines, there was a gallery representing it. But I that was not of interest to me. I didn't care if it got published, whatever gallery wanted it. I didn't care. And when I was done, I made darkroom prints. I made a box of darkroom prints. And I put those prints in a drawer in my office and I started another project. And the other photographer came up to me and said, I don't get you at all. You know, why would you do that? You just made that body of work that's been published, that is a gallery representation. You could spend the next year and like really put yourself on the map with that. Um, and you put it in a drawer and you're starting something else. Like, what are you thinking? I said, I don't care. I don't care about that project being known. I don't care about being known as a photographer. The other photographer was very, very focused on being known. And for them, it was a respect thing of saying, you know, I want to go to a, a gallery opening in L.A. and I want people to know who I am. And me, I was like, I want to go to a gallery opening in L.A. and not have to talk to anyone else. So our, our goals, I'm very reclusive. I don't like, um, you know, the pandemic is, is built for me because I love being isolated. I think that's probably why and also talent level. Okay. OK, let's move on now. This is a very simple question. How much to put a zine together? You can do a zine with MagCloud for $1.20. Small, eight pages, but you don't really need much more. So you can spend as much or as little as you want. You can go to Kinko's and do one. You can do a handmade one. You don't have to do anything fancy. Some countries like France have strict laws about not photographing people without their permission. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Oh, it's a big, big issue. So I was, I'm in an email exchange with a photographer in Costa Rica, who, by the way, is not a photographer. He's, he works in another industry, but he is good. He sent me a, a magazine that he designed and it's one of the best looking things I've seen in a long time. Apparently in Costa Rica, and I don't know this for sure, but it's through him. Um, it's, it's illegal to use someone's image in public without their permission. So um, uh -oh. that is happening in more and more places around the world. There's legislation on the books all over the place to ban photography in public places. Everyone thinks I'm crazy when I talk about that, but it's it's legit. It's out there and they've, they've already tried in certain places. So it depends on the usage of how you're using the image. And again, if you're going to be a professional photographer and you're going to put your work out into the world, you better have a lawyer on retainer. And there are lawyers who are photo specific, centric to photo law. And they, these are good people to know um, because they can save you. And also, you know, how an image is used. Is it on the cover of the book? Is it on the inside? Where Was it shot in a public place, et cetera, et cetera? There's all kinds of gray areas and different different things that are happening. This is a good re resource, by the way. Uh, Very Nolo, careful. Nolo Press is a really good resource for all sorts of legal stuff. But this is called Clearance and Copyright. And 
Look how thick that is. It's look that at should, all this that stuff. That should in tell here. you that's probably the world's most boring book, right? It is it's boring. But when you, you need to, to like, know, it's really you really want to know yeah, what's what's yeah, going on. That, that's the side of professional photography you suspiciously don't hear a lot about. Yeah. And I just want to give a shout out to my friend Kevin, who's on the call as well. Oh, by the way, Kevin is a photographer that shoots for Shimano and he's really really good i see a lot of cycling photography because i do i like that uh industry and i like cycling and his work is phenomenal and uh oh by the way he shoots for you gear gear geeks out there he's a fuji sponsored guy and he's he's using a specific kind of fuji gear in a way that i have for a, a genre of photography that i have not seen anyone else do so he's um he's a pretty smart smart dude well we can uh take a few more questions in so much much photography focuses on single images that stand out. I'm thinking about landscape, nature, portrait. You often look for what is extraordinary and do not portrait how the subject looks. 99% of the time, the ordinary is not interesting enough. How do you approach that urge in documentary photography that arguably is about the ordinary and objective view of the subject? So that's a little tricky. I'm not exactly sure what you're after. However, there is an important little kernel in there, which is about the ordinary. The ordinary is extraordinary. It's just that we've trained ourselves to think that it's not. So, for example, the sun comes up every day. And this morning, while I was having my coffee, I was looking at a sliver of the moon. So, basically, we're on a rock hurtling through space at more than 100 miles an hour. I'm pretty sure it's more than 100 miles it's a, an hour. It's many thousands, actually. Yeah, that's Thousand what I mean. miles. That, that was kind of a, a joke. Yeah. But So, we're on a rock, and there's a giant fiery ball in the sky that's keeping us alive through warmth. So, Pretty much everything that we take for granted on a daily basis is pretty extraordinary. So if you're walking down the street in suburbia in Southern California, that's about as boring as you can get um, and sterile and sort of homogenized and everything. There's still that homogenization is what makes it extraordinary that we, you know, designers and humans could have made that anything we want. For example, L.A. is the city of the automobile. It could have been the city of the sailboat if we wanted it to be, but we didn't. We made it the city of, of the automobile. One question I want to answer here before we leave. Yeah. If I want to create a blur book, where do you suggest to start best video or article? So I've done a million different tips on the blurb YouTube channel, a million tool usage things, whatever. But I did a film, I think last week, Mark, I don't think you've posted it. It's about how to make a test book. Test book is where I would start and also start small and start inexpensive. Do yeah. soft cover, do a small format, do minimum page count, do the cheapest paper and just play and have fun with it. Don't try to make something wonderful the first time you sit down. Bookmaking is a skill like um, sword fighting. And, uh, you know, you don't want to get into a sword fight if you really haven't boned up on how to sword fight. So yeah. bookmaking is kind of the same thing. You want to start small. Don't put pressure on yourself. Have fun. No one else is going to see it. Doesn't have to be perfect. And, and like don't spend you. a lot of money. You know, my books all start off as notebooks. That's notebooks how they. a great way to do it. Yeah. I'm telling you, this thing, this is like super inexpensive and fun, easy way to, to put your work out and then write and over it. It's like then you, you, you know, you change the title, you change the text, but you have to start somewhere. And that's the important thing, you guys. Don't, don't leave it in your head and don't think you about could, it. You can do you this could, today, right now. You can start now. You can start as soon as we're done. You can start your own book. Start it with a notebook. Because it's that you can buy a box set of all seven Smoking the Bandit films. And, and you for know you, that's Europeans, what Dan is doing. When we get off this call, he, it's not about calling his mother. It's not about a business call. He wants to get back to the next Smoking the Bandits, right? My mom drives a black Trans Am and smuggles booze across the Arkansas border. That's just a coincidence, right? Okay, she's, she's okay. That's why she's calling you. Well, Dan, 
I think we're going to let you go. You got one more? It, the new generation of photographers, how do you think that we could build a reputation and reach out to the public with our projects without using social? That is a great topic, and it is incredibly relevant because if you know about the court case from two days ago with Instagram, um, it shook a lot of people and a lot of photographers. And so if you don't know about it, what happened, you should, because if you're using the platform, you better know about it. And oh, by the way, Peter Crow wrote an article called the Instagram Papers in 2013 talking about the fact that this would happen. Wow. And it did. So that's a great topic for another another story, another broadcast, because there are specific things that I would do. Were I trying to be a photographer today, there are, man, there's so many things I would do that don't include social. And if you want to do social, go for it, do whatever you want. But yeah. I think there's other things that are more of a long play, better strategy for long term. Well, on that note, is there any final tip you want to leave these guys with before you sign off? Besides making their notebooks, right? You're going to think I'm joking about this. Okay, let's hear it. I think potentially the single most important part, little tiny sliver of my life that impacts everything else, took me forever to figure this out, is I do yoga every day. I don't, I'm not good at it. I'm not fancy. I'm not flexible. I, I, I don't know any of the names of the poses, but I've been doing this for years and years. It's the single most important thing because it starts to creep into your brain and your mindset in a way that you don't see coming. And that influences your attention span, your ability to focus, your thoughts about the world, your physical movements. It's so weird. I was talking to my wife about it this morning. And, I, and there's a lot of reasons not to do yoga. There's a lot of excuses. I've heard most of them. Um, but I'm telling you, it's a weird thing that's hard to understand until you've done it. And then all of a sudden, the bell goes off and you go, oh, my God, this is incredible. So anyway, that's my last little bit. Dan, thanks again. We love having you on the show. And you're going to be back on again. We'll set up a schedule. And we are working towards getting you that class, that online class. There's a lot of people who want you to do that. So we're going to somehow fit this into your schedule. That's that's my job to figure that out. So so I just want to say thanks to everybody that tuned in, especially those overseas who are yes. out there in different time zones and um, and for taking the time, because obviously there's a lot of things that you guys could be doing at the same time. We've got Ireland. We've got Brazil. We've got India. Thanks for we got India. We got people from all over the place, which is pretty cool. So anyway, I appreciate I it. it. Thanks again, brother. Is um, I hope everybody's doing okay out there. Be smart, be slow, and um, and we'll get through it. Thanks for joining us today on Advancing Your Photography. If there's anything you wanted to see from today's episode, you can find the video version of this show on our YouTube channel, Advancing Your Photography. You can also find the show notes on our website, silverstudios.com forward slash podcast. Please rate and leave a review, subscribe, and be sure to share with your friends. And until next time, remember to get out and capture your own images of life.